Good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all, and I welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and greet you on behalf of the saints, your brothers and sisters over at First ARP in Rock Hill. As we gather together this morning to hear from the Word of God, let us go to Him and pray that He might help us in our time of need. Almighty God, we come to you as poor and needy people, and we take heart and take comfort in the words of Matthew and his gospel, that indeed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for that is who we are. O God, we come to you now to hear you speak in the power of your Holy Spirit by and with the word, and we pray, O God, that you would encourage our hearts that we might think again upon the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and you would so cause holiness to be rooted and worked into our lives that we might live out your will in this world, pointing others to this same gospel of peace in which we take comfort. Oh God, we pray that you would do this now even through the humble words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts that they might be pleasing in your sight, O God, for we know, as the psalmist says, that you our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, our King. Amen. Well, it's been some weeks since you all have met due to inclement weather. And even before that, uh, Reverend Mark Watt preached uh, the beginning of a series on 1 John. We're going to take that up again this morning. And it's a joy for us to turn to this book, a book filled with such practical wisdom and insight. I invite you to turn to chapter 2, you can find that on page 1,899 in your pew Bible. As you're turning there, I'll give you just a little bit of context and background that we might dust off again our approach to this book. You'll remember back in December as the series began in chapter 1 that John begins initially making the argument that everything he writes is not new. In fact, it is that which was from the beginning. Fundamentally, then, John is not proclaiming something new to his readers and hearers. No, he wants us to be concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not with a correction to it or a change of it. And the aim of that passage is that our joy in this life may be complete. And so, brothers and sisters of Clover ARP, I ask you simply this morning, Is your joy complete? Is it founded on the word of life? And secondly, then, John begins to outline from that point in the letter all the way to the end some reasons why our joy may not be complete, why it may come up lacking in this life. And he gives practical instruction to us that we may come back to that fellowship with the Father, with His Son, The first stop on that tour has to do with the practical advice of confession. He proclaims to us that there will be self-deception if we claim to be good people without need of a Savior. Or more than this, we will in fact make God a liar if we do not confess our sins. And yes, he means there particular confession of particular sins. Our joy in this life will be lacking if it's not marked by the continual practice of confessing our sins. 
And all of this leads us to our passage this morning that we begin in chapter 2. And the purpose of writing these first six verses in chapter 2 is simply that we may know if we have fellowship with God, if we have forgiveness from our sin. It certainly will do us no good, beloved, if we confess our sin, if we make a practice of confessing our sin, and yet if we can't take heart and take hope that that confession is accomplishing something. So let us turn again our attention to God's Word. I'll read this passage for us. You can follow along, and I plead your forgiveness. I think you are reading in the NIV. I'm reading in the ESV, but you can follow along nonetheless. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I think of that phrase, I know him. Already you may understand the allusion that I'm making to that great Christmas movie, Elf. I know him. Santa, he's coming here? I know him. Well, I confess to you, like so many uh, children growing up in America, I grew up with a little bit of a skewed view of Christmas. My Christmas growing up evolved around Santa Claus. And before you you disparage my parents too much, I grew up in a godly home, and they wonderfully showed me the gospel and and intentionally and regularly brought me before gospel ministry, and for that I'm eternally grateful. But despite that, Christmas to me as a young child was essentially about how I could acquire stuff, about how I could get a Sega Genesis or how I could get a go-kart, or I remember one Christmas, this incredible collector's edition set of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures. I loved it. But Christmas was all about the stuff that I could get. Now, again, before we think ill of my parents, I blame this squarely on my sinful heart. The insatiable desire to have one more gift, one more thing under the tree. In other words, I'm confessing to you now that I really was a a spoiled little brat when I was a kid. That's who I really was. And I had a topsy-turvy understanding of Christmas. I grew up in the church. I heard all about God and Christ. But Christmas to me was more about Santa Claus theology. You know what that is, right? You work tirelessly, day in and day out, the whole year because you know that Santa religiously keeps two lists, the nice list and the naughty list. And no one wants to be on Santa's naughty list. 
Unfortunately, I think that's the way even many adults, even in the church today, think about Christianity. That's the way we think about the gospel sometimes. If you don't believe me, I'll ask, uh, not for a show of hands, but how many of you have maybe already failed at a New Year's resolution? Or beyond that, how many of us have a lot of guilt that we're not doing as well as we want to do? You know, we're not even halfway through the first month, and yet we already see the man or woman in the mirror is not perfect. We're not able to measure up. We know deep down that there is a possibility we may be on that naughty list. But how? How can our joy be complete in this life if that's the way that we approach living? And what remedy does Christ offer us in the gospel this morning? Well, let us turn back to our passage that we may find hope instead of despair. Notice first the great affection with which John writes to these people. He says in verse 1, My little children. It's not just children, a term of affection that he uses elsewhere in the gospel, but he says, My little children. He's obviously deeply concerned for his brothers and sisters in the faith that he knows and love. He's writing to them because he cares. Even though he's talking about pretty serious things, things that we don't like to talk about. We didn't get the opportunity to look at the verses immediately preceding our passage, but he tells them there, if you don't confess that you're a sinner, you have nothing to do with God. And we don't like to talk about sin, do we? Our churches today could learn from this. I think at least we could learn that it's not okay not to talk about sin. We have to deal with it, even in our churches, especially in our churches. We can't act as if we're a people who aren't messed up, in desperate need of a Savior. All of us are. So the loving thing to do is to talk about our sins with one another. Even to confess our sins to one another as James teaches. But second, we must also recognize that there is a loving way to do this. How often we see in churches around our country that they understand they need to talk about sin, but it's not done in a loving capacity. We actually have to be concerned for one another. We have to care enough to help shoulder that burden of sin in this life. You know, the sin in our lives is a costly mess, really. We need to count the cost. I commend you. You're looking to the future. I know this because I came in this morning and I saw a building under construction. I talked with one of your elders about all of the children that you have growing up in this church. What a good and godly blessing that is. There's not enough room. By the way, you might want to think about bumping a pew back. They're they're crawling all over the place down here. What a joyous sight that is. You're counting the cost. That to love them well means planning for the future. There must be space in which to disciple these children. We must count the cost of what it means to be brothers and sisters in the faith. To bear that burden together. 
Sin is costly. We must be as close as a family when we do this. That's why he calls them children. They're not really his children. Probably not even as Paul writes to children. People that he has discipled and brought to the Lord. His spiritual children. These John just has great affection for. They are as close to him as family. But John continues his point by saying that he's writing so that we may not sin. And as soon as he's introduced us to this ideal, he gives way to the reality of life. Notice what he says next. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. John demonstrates here that the proper course of action for the one who sins is not to meditate on one's sin and how to overcome it. No, the the first thing that the Christian who sins should do, the first thing is to meditate on the reality that we already have an advocate or a defender with the Father. And it's none other than God the Son, Jesus, the righteous Savior. For the one who sins, you have an advocate. Notice the verb tense. And why is it important that John calls him righteous? I think about this in terms of the church in which I serve. Over at First Rock Hill, we have our fair share of lawyers, and there's all kinds of fun jokes that go around, lawyer jokes, preacher jokes. But John, is he's deeply concerned that we understand who is defending us. You see, all the lawyers at first are fine, competent people. As capable as they are on any given day, if they were defending me in the eyes of the world, and depending upon the judge that we were before, they might not be able to winsomely defend me. Our legal system is finite and imperfect. They're sinful people with sinful aspirations. I am a sinner. But this is not the case for our salvation. This is not the way in which we are defended before the Father. Christ not only stands as God before God, infinite, just in all things, all-powerful, but He's also the perfect and righteous defendant. Did you hear that? He's not only the capable defense attorney, He's the one who is being tried. God decides our case not by evaluating us, not by looking into your life at your sin, but by looking at Christ. That's the balance in which your salvation hangs. Not, was I good enough this year to make the nice list or... Were there a couple of things that I forgot about that's going to push me over to the the lumps of coal? This is what John means as he continues in verse 2. He unpacks what it means that Jesus is our advocate. He says, He, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Christ is both the payment for our sins and the payee. The one who has to to bear that payment before God. 
He's the one who satisfies the wrath of Almighty God and the one whereby that wrath is quenched, the one that that absorbs all of that wrath and judgment. Now we need to pause here for a moment. There are many people, even in the church, even well-meaning people who misunderstand this last phrase. What What does John mean when he says the sins of the whole world? Well, to understand this truth and the word propitiation that that points to, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to look at that, that sacrificial system that seems so foreign to us in our sensibilities today. How were the Old Testament Israelites saved? How were their sins dealt with? You ever thought about that? Do you remember the the day of atonement described in Leviticus 16? There the priest, Aaron, the high priest specifically, is instructed to purify himself and come into the presence of God, enter into the Holy of Holies, and then offer up two goats for sacrifice. One is a dead one, one is a living one. The dead one is, is the blood shed for the payment for sin. Takes care of the guilt of sin. The other goat is taken away into the wilderness. It's the sin of obedience even unto death that the one who bears our sins away from us. But you know, this is a little bit of a trick question because ultimately the sins of Old Testament Israel, like our sin, is dealt with by none other than the blood of Jesus the Lamb of God. So we see in Hebrews 10, this is a little bit of a lengthy reading, but but listen what the writer of Hebrews says there in, in Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Will they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love 
and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. You see, John, the writer of Hebrews, they're not saying that the whole world, meaning everyone in all of history, will be saved. But he's saying that everyone whom God saves will be saved by the same way. Jesus is the Christ. The one who takes away the sin of the whole world. Therefore, He's the only Christ. The only Savior. This passage is not teaching a universal atonement that everyone is saved no matter what. In fact, it's teaching the very opposite. It makes the case for a very definite atonement. Those who are saved are only saved because the blood of Jesus the Son of God. That's exactly what John maintained back in chapter 1. The truth of the gospel, which he says was from the beginning, meaning from before time. Simply put, God doesn't save people one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. He doesn't save Christians one way and everyone else another way. It's only ever been through Jesus Christ, the righteous, The sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. But as John said in chapter 1, Jesus has now been made manifest. You know what's interesting about that word? It's a Latin word phrase that means a show of hand. How often we're like the doubting Thomas. If you are really the Christ, if you are really this Jesus that we knew, now resurrected, show me your hand. Beloved God has shown His hand to us in Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is His hand. From all eternity, for all eternity. Salvation in Christ. As a children's sermon so eloquently put it, free gift of God. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, Come without money and buy. Take of the water of life without price. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Christ says, and I will give you rest. A really miraculous thing happened When I was 16 years old, I was saved. I grew up in the church. I heard all about God, all about Christ. But I fundamentally didn't understand that I had an advocate before the Father. Jesus had not been made manifest to me. Up to that point, I loved Christmas. But only because of all the gifts that I got. I did everything I could all year long in order to maximize the bounty of Christmas morning. And then Christ took hold of my life. He came in as the present, the gift, and everything else paled in comparison. From then on, I have loved Christmas not because I get presents, because I get to give them. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not some perfect person. I'm not lifting myself up as an example to you. 
I'm still a, a rotten sinner, just like all of us in this room. But something had fundamentally changed in my life. I had received that which was really satisfying, that which could quench my thirst. I no longer had that insatiable desire for more, more, more. If you want to see that on display, just go to Walmart or Target or any of these places around Christmas time and watch our wonderful parents struggle and wrestle with kids going through a store. And everything in that store is presented like, you need this. Just one more thing. You need this. This is the toy of the year. You need this. It's never enough. It will never be enough. Jesus was made manifest to me. He freed me from that. Isn't this what we see from the rest of our passage? Look at what he writes beginning in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Listen very carefully. I think this is the heart of the gospel and this is where so many of us can get off track. John does not say, by this we come to know him. He's not telling us that we can come to God if we keep his commandments. That's works righteousness. That's legalism. That's everything that the Jewish Old Testament is set up to do at least as they misunderstood it before Christ. John is not telling us that. We can never truly know God if we're trying to relate to Him on our own. Our legal defense will fail us. We're not perfect. Our sin is too great. But John is saying that if we keep His commandments, if we guard the Word of God, then we can know that we have already come to know Him. It sounds like just a semantic switch, but it's, it's so very important for us to understand. Do you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? What we read earlier from Leviticus 10. It's an interesting scene, and it may seem a bit extreme to us. Now, if we read this story like many people today understand Christianity, then we'll misunderstand the gospel entirely. Now, if these guys are just priests trying to do their best, they're trying to offer their service to God, trying to please Him in the duty of that office, then we'll think the Christian life is one where we try to please God and live so that we might be good enough to be in His presence, to earn His favor The only problem with that scenario is that they had forgotten what God had just done before their very eyes. We didn't take the time to read the end of chapter 9, but hear these words. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. What had God just done? 
God had revealed his glory. That he would be their God and they would be his people. The fire comes out not in rage. The fire comes out from his presence to consume that which God had provided. It represented forgiveness for the people. That they were cleansed. That his wrath had been assuaged. They had made atonement. They were right with God already. Elsewise, his glory would not have been seen. The problem is, they were not doing their duty. Nadab and Abihu were trying to add to God's glory. And even more than this, they were doing it in a way apart from that which God had commanded. Now, why is this pertinent for us in our passage today? Because, you see, God has provided for each and every one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sin. A beautiful picture of that word. Remember those two goats. Those, Those day of atonement sacrifices that cleansed the people from all their sin for all the year, even the ones they didn't know that they had committed. And that is Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who has perfectly obeyed in our place. The one who absorbs all of God's displeasure on our behalf. And then takes away our sin as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. The point of the passage then is not that we earn God's favor. It's not that we look at our lives as Christians and when we sin, when we're not obeying God's commandments, we despair and say, oh, I'm not perfect. God does not love me. He's displeased with me. He's casting me off. That's already established. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who seeks after God. No one is righteous. No, not one. The psalmist attests to that. Paul says that very clearly. The difference our passage makes is where are you looking for your hope? Are you looking to Christ as the one who has taken your sin away? Are you trusting in Him as the one who is righteous enough that no matter How sinful we may be, grace abounds all the more. And so practically then, what do we do do in life? How can our joy be made complete? How, preacher, how do we keep His commandments? We see in the rest of the passage, if, if we say that we know Him, but don't keep His commandments, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. But whoever keeps His word... In Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Beloved, what does it mean to keep the commandments of God? What does it mean to walk in the way in which He walked? Simply put, when Jesus was tempted... 
even as we are, yet without sin. From whence did his defense come? It says man does not live by bread alone. Man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you today want to know what it means to keep the commandments of God, if you want to know what it means to know that you have already come to know Him, where is your trust? If you do sin, what do you do next? Do you trust that God is faithful? Do you trust that Christ is able to wash you clean despite what you have done? Do you guard that word in your heart that He who has promised is faithful? That if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the heart of the gospel. The one who doesn't keep the commandments is the one who says, well, I'm not a sinner. It's not really that big of a deal. I'm just kind of living my life my own way. I don't really need God or need salvation. I don't need Christ who is the righteous one to defend me. Simply put, the one who keeps the commandments says, Oh God, forgive me in Christ, for I am a sinner, and He is righteous. Look upon Christ and not upon me. I trust in You, that You are a faithful God, that You are able to do through Christ far more abundantly than all I can ask or think, and I trust in Your Word. I'll end with this. I wonder if you've thought about what we're doing right here and right now. Have you thought about we are in the presence of God Almighty through the blood of the Lamb. Christ has bid us to come to the Father. Now we don't think that way often when we come to church. Some of us think of church as a duty. I'm tempted often to think of church as my job. But it's entirely different when we think that we come to church to be reminded that we've already come to know Him in Christ. We have access to the Father right here and right now to worship Him in all of His holiness and all of His splendor. And in Christ... He will not cast us off. He cannot. For Christ is the righteous. Let us pray. Lord our God, we come to you today and we pray that you would cleanse us and heal us from all unrighteousness, not because of who we are and what we have done. Oh Lord, we we give up to you. We forsake the way of the world. We do not seek to prove ourselves righteous. We do not seek to earn your favor or try to guard our position on the nice list for we know that even before we were born, we were sinful people. We were born into our sin, David says in the Psalms. Oh God, we pray that you would have mercy upon us only because of Christ. And we trust in you. Lord, we count you able.
to cleanse us. And we thank you and we praise you today for this glorious good news that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. We thank you that he is not simply the judge standing before us, but he is our advocate, our defender, our redeemer and friend. He is the one in whom we believe. And you have therefore given us the right to become children of God. Lord, we praise you for this honor and glory. We ask that you would help us then to keep your commandments, to guard your word in our hearts, to meditate upon it day and night, not as that by which we gain salvation, but that way in which we enjoy salvation. Lord, I pray that you would make us about the Lord Jesus, that we would be a church that are about Christ and the things of Christ, that we would count it all joy and delight as we gather together, as we seek to encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds. Lord, even as we confess our sins to one another and we have the gospel wash over us anew, as we're reminded that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're bound together in one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism in which we stand. Lord, we praise you for this good news and we ask that you would help us then. As we leave this place, would you empower us with your spirit that we would go into this world and proclaim this new and glorious way that Christ has given us. Would we proclaim that this life is not going to give us joy, nor will it ever give us joy when we're seeking to live it for ourselves, when we're trying to earn your favor? Lord, all of us are too busy pursuing all the things of the world, and we see the results. We see where our friends and our co-workers are headed. O oh Lord, help us to have the boldness to proclaim this new way, a way that is free, a way that brings rest, a way that brings hope and joy. O oh God, I pray that you would add to your saints daily the number who believe in Christ, even here in this church, that they would have the blessing of seeing people call upon Christ and convert in saving faith to Jesus. I pray that you would multiply their witness even here in this town that people would look and see Clover ARP and they would see the love with which they love one another and they would give praise to you for they are different. These Christians are different. They love even when it's costly, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult because they have been given everything that they need in Christ. The Lord help us to count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. I pray that you would do this all for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray in the strong name of Christ the righteous, our advocate. Amen.